Hello, welcome to the Flow Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Ran Bowen, and I'm thrilled to have you join us on this inspiring journey. Together with my incredible co-host, Joe Stewart, we delve into the minds of extraordinary movers, thinkers, and teachers, exploring the depths of their experiences and discovering how they find their flow and much, much more. But before we dive in, we want to take a moment to acknowledge and honour the traditional owners of the unceded land where this episode was recorded, the Rwandari people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our deepest respects to the elders, both past, present, and acknowledge the emerging leaders within their community. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with Paul Archer. Based right here in Melbourne, Paul is a beloved meditation and yoga teacher and trainer of teachers. With a focus on yin and restorative yoga, he imparts his wisdom through his teaching at the Australian Yoga Academy and at his own studio, Yoga Sita, in Carnegie, Melbourne. He's the proud author of the award-winning book, The Esoteric Science of Restorative Yoga. We are excited to catch up with Paul and learn about his rich and varied life experiences. We also want to give a content warning as we do briefly discuss abuse within various yoga lineages and the ethical considerations of using quotes from teachers from those traditions. Now, without further ado, let's jump right in. All right, well, Paul, thank you so much for coming over here today and speaking with us today. It's so great to get the opportunity to speak with you finally after several drop balls on my part, I must admit. (laughs) So perhaps we could just start with you telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Sure. I'm Irish and I was born in Dublin. My parents were, were involved in philosophical schools all my life, even before I was born. And I, they very much inspired in me to, to be free in choices and things that I would do. And there's, I think there's kind of learning about philosophy and then there's practically applying philosophy into your life. My parents were very big on that. And so they were encouraging me. I, I went traveling solo first at 13 and they were fully behind me and encouraged me to do that and kind of open doors for me. So I kind of caught the traveling bug or what my dad would call wanderlust. And I've lived in maybe 10 countries and finally settled. I'd lived in Australia before in about 99, 2000, and then ended up coming back here about four or five years later. And I've in 2004 and I've stayed here since. So I've got to ask, like, where did you go when you were 13? I went to Spain. Like on your own? Yeah, well, we'd had, uh, my mother used to take in uh, foreign students. And so I'd made a friendship with one guy. We were pen pals. I'm that old, right? And so we continued communicating. And he said to me, why don't you come back to Spain next year? And I said, well, you know, I'll ask my parents if it's allowed. And, and, you know, I was allowed, but they just didn't have the money to do it. So unrelenting, I just went out and did odd jobs for people all around, cutting grass, cleaning their cars. And I, I started raising the money towards going there. And people saw the effort that I was putting in. And my grandmother said, I'll double whatever you make. And my uncle then showed up about three weeks beforehand and said, I bought you a ticket. Oh, wow. So I had all this money. I was never so rich in my life <laughs> at that point in my life. And so I went to Spain for three months and came back speaking Spanish. And wow. funny, my mum heard me on the phone talking to Arcadio, my friend, and 
she was saying, he's not really speaking Spanish, is he? And, <laughs> and my friend or her friend who knew Spanish said, no, he's actually pretty good. It's, uh, I've always been quick to pick up languages. Well, that's, that's amazing. And uh, I understand that you uh, were enrolled into a philosophical school when you were three years old. Sure, yeah. Would you like to tell us about that? Because I, I'm sure when I was three years old, I was definitely not um, doing anything like that. So, yeah. Well, this is the 70s, right? Yeah. So, but back then, the idea of Montessori schools and pre-education was actually very progressive. And we had done Montessori schools and stuff, but the uh, Dublin School of Social Economic Science was a very progressive, kind of like a early Steiner school, maybe. And we learned things like Vedic maths and Sanskrit and uh, visual exercises. More, I think it was focused on the idea of how to learn as opposed to here's a load of information. We want you to regurgitate that at a later date. And if you can, you pass the exam they actually approached how to learn, which is a, a beautiful way. Not that I remember a huge amount of it because I was very young. I do remember sitting there chanting, you know, ah, e, ooh, like you would the vowels of any language and words and stuff. But certainly when I started yoga teaching, I found Sanskrit was incredibly easy to me. And then it started making sense, things like it within my parents. Our fourth cat was called Chatur like Chaturanga, four, <laughs> four limbs pose, all of these things that my parents had, you know, implemented through my life. I'm like, ah, this, this all starts to tie in and make sense to me. Hence, it was very easy. I'm wondering if that really early learning Sanskrit actually was something that set you up for learning lots of other languages later. Absolutely. Well, the three, my the first three, I'm the oldest, and my my brother and my sister, um, both did it. By the fourth child, I don't think they could afford it, so he didn't do it. And his, he like his, he seems to be very limited with languages. If somebody said, if a Spanish guy said perfecto, he'd be like, whoa, speaky de English, <laughs> couldn't you know? It doesn't translate in his mind. Whereas uh, at this point, I think I speak French, Spanish, English, Irish, some Thai, a little Chinese, uh, you know, like I, I just pick Australian. <laughs> I, just, I just pick up languages very, very quickly. Nice, nice. And actually, I'm, I'm sort of curious. So your parents were heavily into philosophy, all, all sorts of different philosophy. Where did that come from? It was something that they wanted to do together. They wanted to do courses together as a couple, you know, young couple with kids and stuff growing up. And they wanted to find some common interests. And so they were going to do, I think, public speaking. And then that didn't really work with their schedule. But what did work was the School of Practical Philosophy. So they started going to that and they absolutely fell in love with that. This is before, actually, before they had kids. And so... That became, uh, they went from that school onto another school, then into the, the Gurdjieff and Ospensky Fourth Way School. So they certainly explored it and were looking at practically applying these things into their life and, and their methods. Absolutely. I feel very honored, actually, to have grown up amongst that. And I can see things that maybe I resisted when I was a child, but I would absolutely do with my own children now. I see the wisdom in it. You don't when you're a child, right? You resist what your parents say, but there was absolutely, you know, philosophical thought and ideas behind it. 
I feel like that helps you integrate that kind of knowledge so much better as well when you do have someone you can talk about with it. Usually it's just other people in the course, but especially someone who you know out of the course as well. It's like sometimes you've got to chew over that stuff a bit to really kind of grasp all the layers of understanding. 100%. Hmm. And I guess we've been sort of zipping around a bit chronologically, but I guess with this background you had of of learning about philosophy from different parts of the world, like both Western and Eastern schools, and, and learning about yoga as, as a very young person, what drew you towards yoga as an adult and towards eventually coming to teach yoga? Well, it wasn't really focused on yoga. It was more on philosophy right. and spirituality, I think. Yoga was my own direction or my own path, as if I originally was Tai Chi and then further on into yoga. I didn't really start doing yoga till I was about 30. Oh, wow. And I, I fell in love with it. Not, not my first class, interestingly. I was brought, a friend of mine, was, I was always going to the gym, and a friend of mine said, oh, you've got to come and do yoga. And he brought me into this class down at Seabats. And the teacher was very passive aggressive. It was very hot, doing a lot of movements. And he was saying, some people in this room are sweating too much. And I was sweating profusely. I was like, well, there's no switch to to stop sweating. It's like (laughs) such a passive aggressive kind of comment. And afterwards, I was like, yeah, I wasn't really wasn't really into it. And my friend said, oh, look, maybe you're better off coming, you know, when when this girl's on and she's much more gentle and maybe he was just having a bad day. So I came back and she was and she was much more about spirituality and connection and breath and movement. And I found a lot of similarities with Tai Chi and kind of energetic movement and connection to the body and that that kind of union that that yoga is really all about. And so I, I kind of fell in love with it. But it was always just for me. I had never no intent to to teach yoga. There was certainly a point where I'd been practicing with one school with Samachi for about five years. And the, you know, people were asking me, was I a teacher? I knew the sequences. I knew what was coming. I was doing all the kind of fancy, what I call trikonasana, you know, tripod headstand, back into crow, float back, drop down. Like, it's all fancy, tricky stuff. And it's great that you achieve that, but it's certainly not what yoga is about. And so when did you kind of make the shift from... I don't want to call them the show-off poses, the the more active poses into restorative yoga. I suppose when I was injured that I had a teacher who hyperextended my spine in full wheel, which is a very vulnerable position, right? Mm. That You know, you're there and you you can't do anything in that position. If somebody lifts you, it's a terrible adjustment. But And this was right at the start of my teacher training. So I went through my entire teacher training injured and... And people were afraid to touch me because our school was actually very strong on adjustments and nobody wanted to touch me because I was already injured. I was in pain for the best part of a year and a half. I went to Cairo's, osteos, Chinese doctors. I took sports medicine specialists. I took steroids and anti-inflammatories and nothing was really working. I was, it was just something I felt like, oh, I'll have to live with it. CAT scans and x-rays and they tell me, well, we can't really see anything. So, you know, that's good. But in, in those kind of injuries, you really want to know what's going on. It almost helps you understand, oh, well, it's, uh, you know, that vertebrae has been damaged or something is causing it. But when you don't know, it's, it's almost more frustrating than anything. But 
you know, I've come to learn or come to realize that injuries can be your greatest teachers. So I was able to do all the fancy, tricky poses and flash things. But how relevant is that to someone who's come into my class who's maybe limited or tight or has an injury? So to knock me down, I mean, there was a point where the only yoga pose I could do was Charles pose. That was it. I couldn't do anything else. And so I had to focus more on breath work, on, you know, I would study and research things that I could do or ways of helping myself and healing myself. So healer, heal thyself, essentially. And I was drawn to restorative yoga because of that, because it was very accessible to people with injuries. And I went very, very deep into the meditative state very quickly and dropping into my own parasympathetic nervous system. And eventually the, all that pain just disappeared. I'd stopped going to see people for consults or treatments. It's all very expensive, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And then uh, it just kind of faded away. And I, was, I brought myself back to full health through yoga. And so when you were like, before you got to that point, when you're going to all of the appointments and kind of in pain, going to a teacher training for a yoga-induced injury, did yeah. you ever have a bit of a crisis of faith and be like, am I going to be able to be a teacher? And yoga's what hurt me. Well, it wasn't yoga that hurt me. It was the teacher's adjustment. And, you know, sometimes teachers see things on YouTube and then they bring it into their class without really understanding and, you know, and I suppose you learn by adjusting someone and hurting them and then you know not to do that. I mean, it's a terrible <laughs> way to learn. But in the end, I'm grateful for it because it did spur on a lot of research for me. And when when people come in with injuries, and especially back or spinal injuries, I'm very up to date on that. And I keep doing it. Anytime I get an injury, I try and look at it as a blessing. It is really interesting as well because there's more and more research around pain and about how you know, even if you get imaging done, people can have a worse looking MRI and be in less pain. And then there can be someone like you who doesn't have anything that's visible on the MRI and have like a year worth of pain and restricted movement. Like, I think it's such an interesting area of science and learning. And also, in some ways, like Western medicine catching up to more energetic types of medicine where it's like, oh, it might not just be a structural damage. It could be your stress levels and your sleep and all of these other factors in your life that's causing this chronic pain to continue rather than ease. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, an idea within the philosophical school that all the experiences that you have are the ones exactly necessary for your development. So it, it can be very liberating to understand that because we tend to judge experiences, or society does, as good or bad experiences. This is a good one. This is a bad one. And yet all of them are drawn into your experience because they're what's necessary for you to develop, grow, and evolve. And, you know, we'd all find or, or recognize those lessons that we have learned and then have dropped out of our experiences. Now, maybe new lessons come in and are maybe even harder lessons than the ones before. But once you've learned that lesson, it seems to just pass out of your life, right? You know, mm. Whether it's people or situations that you got yourself in, once you know, that lesson no longer occurs. Although I do have to caution as well, <laughs> don't say that to anyone who's going through a chronic health issue or injury that it's like, oh, I wonder why this has happened to you. Like, it's like you've got to come to that learning at your own time and your own pace. Like, it can be quite insulting when people are. <laughs> sure. 
it's like when when you understand that the source of pain is the brain. So, you know, brain sending a pain message, which mm. can actually be switched off. But you would never tell someone in chronic pain, it's all in your mind. Mm. Yeah. That, that would be incredibly offensive and not very trauma sensitive. Mm. Mm. And I was just wondering, like, I guess your experience of being injured by an adjustment would have, uh, I guess, tempered your approach to, to offering modifications or, or the way you teach even. Or do you offer modifications? I do. I think generally studios since COVID have probably backed off a lot on, on the hands-on approach. Mm-hmm. I would 100% want to know a student and whether they had any pre-existing injuries before ever laying my hands on them. I think, it, you know, I take the two-finger approach that if the amount of pressure I'm applying to someone's body needs more than two fingers, it's too much. And then it's like, well, what's the benefit? Yeah. If I have to force their body mm. beyond where they can go. So often I'll, I'll use, here's my two fingers, see if you can move your knee out towards that. So it's all of their own volition. It's not, not even any pressure. Mm. So definitely I've pulled back. Um, amazingly, I hear a lot of people are injured by yoga teachers. You'd be amazed how many. We're not in America, so you're not getting sued. They're maybe even embarrassed to say it to the teacher because they're in a community, in a studio, and they don't want to mess that up and be the person. I certainly felt that. I was the teacher who injured me was training or he was working for the school where I was training at, and I was just starting my teacher training. I didn't want to be like, hey, by the way, you've just... I felt that kind of almost like a guilt or a victim situation. And it was one of the other teachers said, no, you need to tell him. He needs to know. Mm. Otherwise, he's just going to continue doing those things to people. And and so I did broach it with him. He kind of ignored it, though. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a worry when people are so blasé that it kind of makes you think, oh, this is not the first time that someone's told you that they've been hurt in your class by you because you seem fine with it. Like, Yeah. I've actually treated people since who've, who've been injured by the same teacher, but sometimes people are, are just very hands-on or rough. Or, and, and, you know, sometimes people love it. Like you could push down on someone in a child's pose and they absolutely love that. But someone with a hip injury, you could cause them intense mm. pain and that pain may linger for six months, a year afterwards. And so I think we're a little bit in agreement as to what is not a great quality in a yoga teacher. Sure, sure. What makes a good yoga teacher and especially a good restorative yoga teacher? I think the in particular in restorative, although the same could be true for vinyasa teachers, being comfortable with silence is a phenomenal quality with, with a yoga teacher because otherwise it's the Paul show. It's it's me up there entertaining and, and, you know, and I find that a lot of teachers, they feel, especially with restorative and yin, that if they're not speaking, they think people will be bored, right? That they can't leave silence. So in reality, what's happening is they're not comfortable with silence. So when you're on the radio and stuff or, or in these kind of podcasts, if someone you were to ask someone a question and they were just to stop talking and think about it, it would be like, come on, come on, say something, say something. But a yoga class is not that environment. So allowing space for people, like the deepest, most introspective moments you ever had on your yoga mat were not when the teacher was talking, right? 
There were those moments where they held the space for you. They allowed you to drop in, you to go into your own consciousness. Because when, as soon as they talk, you then come out of that state to listen, hear, you know, absorb what they're saying, process it in the brain, and it's taking you away. It's another kind of distraction. And restorative is that guiding people inwards to it. Someone said to me the other day, you're changing my life. I said, I'm doing nothing. I'm just up the front talking. You're doing everything. I literally couldn't do anything. I could not switch on your parasympathetic nervous system. I couldn't reduce the cortisol in your body or lower your heart rate or blood pressure. All of it's being done by you. All I'm doing is pointing the right direction and reminding you, gentle reminders. So... To me, a good restorative teacher is well-versed in physiology and kind of parasympathetic activation, but they also allow enough space for it. They're not filling it with, you know, it's people want to know things and it's good to be educational. And I definitely like to inform people of, you know, what the benefit is or why we're doing it. But you kind of, I have the idea that you want to be like a really good waiter. Have you ever had a really good waiter? And they kind of, they've topped up your glass and you didn't even notice it. They're not trying to take your your plate away while you're in the middle of a conversation. They're just in and out and it's effortless. You don't even notice they're there, but you never run out of anything. That's the role you want as, as a yoga teacher, that you're a facilitator. You're there for their experience, not for yours. And do you play music in your classes? I do sometimes. There's a whole idea in restorative yoga about not playing music. But I find that for most people to come from a place of very noisy, busy, active monkey mind, that to just go to complete silence and stillness is too much. It's too much. It's, it's, you're trying to take them from the bottom stair to the top stair in one go, and they just end up flat on their face in the middle of the stairs. So, you know, it's the same with, with meditation, that people don't sit in meditation most of the time, especially if they're new to it. They sit in their own irritation, and that irritation is usually invisible to them until that moment that they try and be still. And then every thought, every sensation, every external noise and emotion rises up and they sit there thinking, well, this is useless. I'm not getting any benefit out of this. But it's actually a very important phase to recognize that that is the constant noise, it's like living in the city. And you, you tune out the noise of the city. But then when you go into the countryside, you're like, oh my God, it's so still and so quiet. And restoratives like that, it'll first, it may be difficult to sit in stillness, absolutely. So music can be a great thing. And now, you know, if you were to play dance music, something with a beat, that would increase people's heart rate and, and it would take them in the wrong direction. So I actually use frequency-based tunes. Dr. Steve T. Jones, he's brilliant. He produces a whole range of them, different hertz, like 174 hertz, the Schumann resonance, the resonance the earth vibrates at, different ones to activate, you know, a consciousness or spirituality or change emotional patterns. And they're very soft and gentle. Sometimes you've got the sound of waves coming in. And I will integrate that in the class just because it gives them at least one kind of focus and it's calming and centering. But over time, I will fade it out. So eventually you do want to, as they're dropping into to parasympathetic, as they're coming to more stillness, maybe less and less thoughts in the mind, more and deep, 
hyper relaxational states, even shifting brainwave states is actually what's happening, that then you can fade that out. And then they're okay with stillness rather than it be anxiety creating or they're sitting there picking their nails, checking their phone, you know, very, very restless. And you can see that. You can look out into a class as a teacher and you can see 100% who's struggling with it. So I do tend to incorporate that uh, like music into the class as a beginning, but also explanations that that's probably what's happening, that we're, you know, I, I think generally people would think of that as a very modern affliction because we're texts and emails and we're always on. And yet, as you go further back in time, if we go to the 1600s, they're talking about the same things and doctors and physicians are looking at ways of trying to balance it and bring it down. You know, there's a very famous quote from a French philosopher in the 16th century that all of man's ailments could be cured if he could just sit in stillness in a room on his own. So, you know, we get bored or we have this idea, but what is boredom? Boredom is this idea that you need to be doing something. It's, a, it's actually sympathetic activation. And we're so used to that. It's so dominant in our lives that when we hit parasympathetic activation, it's like, well, something needs to be happening. I, no pain, no gain, right? This kind of idea. I need to be doing something. Otherwise, surely there can be no benefit. It seems contraindicated to, you know, what we normally think or how we achieve something. And, you know, in the start of class, I might only do four or five poses. And people are commonly so surprised at, at the results they get and the feeling and they've dropped in and you know, it's very common for people, especially if they're new to restorative yoga, to say, is it okay if I just sit down here for a while? Like, I'm, you know, do not operate heavy machinery immediately afterwards. That they, But it's just that they're not used to being in parasympathetic mode. And maybe 99% of their life is in sympathetic. So they drop in. It's a shift of consciousness. It's a shift of brainwaves today. Their biology has changed. Their heart rate, their blood pressure, cortisol and uh, norepinephrine and all these things have been reduced in the body. And it's kind of like a reset. I often say to students that it's very similar, like when you switch, when your phone's not working, right? You'll switch it off and on again. How does that work? You don't know, right? Nobody knows. Well, maybe Apple knows. <laughs> but the, you know, it works. You kind of reset factory settings and things that weren't working start working again. We have that ability by dropping into parasympathetic nervous system. If you want to think of it like, you know, you're an office and the office is really busy and everybody's doing their job. All your organs are doing their job, typing away at the computers. And But, you know, dirt accumulates, the bins fill up, toilet roll needs to be replaced for the office to function well. But if the office is on 24-7, then the cleaners never have any time to come in, clean the place, restock things, empty the bins. So if you're constantly in that sympathetic work mode, the parasympathetic, the cleaners and fixers never get to come in. And after a while, the rubbish starts to build up and overflow. There's no toilet paper in, you know, all of these things start to magnify very, very quickly. So we need to have that balance of kind of resetting and activation. It's not like there's anything wrong 
with sympathetic nervous system. We absolutely need it. We need it to be active and do. We need it in those moments. And it's very easy to recognize sympathetic activation if a car pulls out in front of you unexpectedly, right? And you get that little boost of adrenaline. You get that tingling, that awareness. You you react very quickly. Your psoas contracts so your legs can move. And you, know, and you feel that kind of stimulation. That's sympathetic thing. And that's absolutely useful. In fact, essential in that kind of moment. It's just not needed to be on all the time. In fact, it's very, very taxing on our body. We run out of it adrenaline we we have this adrenal fatigue kind of syndrome because we're we're constantly stimulating that fight or flight action so we need rest and digest or or what we think of as parasympathetic nervous system we need that balance and so after someone has been in the class and they've kind of gone into that really deep calm state do you have any particular practices that you do to help them integrate and then re-emerge back out into the world, like without losing that inner calm, but also being responsive enough that they can like drive home safely. Oh, I mean, they can drive home safely. They may just need a few minutes because they're they're a little kind of spaced out from it, or it's an unusual state for them. Um, and of course, it will fade off over time. But I remember the first class I taught at, at GSAC for restorative, which is very progressive for them to have restorative on the schedule. And I'd said to the women that, you know, if you feel a little spaced out later on during the day or as you continue about, know that that's completely normal. It just may be that you've, you know, you've achieved a kind of altered state or you've gone deep within the practice. And the following week, a woman came and said, I'm so glad you said that because I was walking around the, the supermarket feeling like I was walking on the moon. And I was like, have I been spiked or something? Like, what's going on here? And then, oh, yeah, he said, if you feel a bit like that, it's actually very normal. So there's nothing really to integrate, uh, like to bring them back. It will happen very naturally. We would love to stay in parasympathetic a lot longer, but our sympathetic nervous system switches on almost, almost instantly for most people or very quickly over a few minutes yeah, no, and it needs to because you then have to get in your car and drive home and you have to be aware of traffic. So sympathetic and, and parasympathetic, not, it's not good or bad. It's just what's necessary. And we tend to overdo the sympathetic nervous system. And that results in, in injuries and illnesses. And I mean, if we break down the word disease, dis-ease, sympathetic is not looking for a state of ease, parasympathetic is. So to balance dis-ease, you need more ease. That's it. I mean, the clue's there in the word right away. What strategies do you have for people who feel like going into that state of stillness and also silence actually makes them feel more stressed and more tense? Sure. And anxiety. And I mean, this is incredibly common. This is a sign of sympathetic overactivation that the mind is chronically looking for something to do. And when we go into the brain aspect of what's actually happening is that the brain rewards us for finding something new. So we're focused on one thing and then a sound, a noise, a distraction comes in. And if we now look at that, we get rewarded much in the same way that like pokey machines and the sounds like buttons trigger the limbic brain. And we actually get an endogenous and natural to the body opioid reward, very small one, every time you do. So you feel, oh, you look at that, you feel good. Well, you don't even realize that it's happening. And what 
what develops is an addiction to being constantly stimulated over and over again. So what is boredom in a class it's that you're needing to do something else, right? That some kind of engagement, some kind of stimulation has to be had. It's very obvious sympathetic overactivation. And so I, I think explaining that and telling people it's okay, in fact, it's a very important phase to recognize that that's what's going on in your mind. And we don't want to be addicted to constantly moving. Your brain is doing that to you. And we don't even realize most of the time, we just kind of go along with what makes us feel better. Mm, and it can be like a trauma response as well, right? Like that hypervigilance. Yes. Uh, yeah. PTSD and absolutely a reliving things and, you know, always switched on in case of danger. I mean, that is sympathetic it's fight or flight it's it's that awareness and and we do need it you know so i can just tell by talking to you you obviously give people a lot of space to have their own experience in your classes is that something that you kind of build in when you're setting people up to settle into a pose with a longer hold do you kind of give people like an out or like something to do if it does feel too much and too intense for them to be there? Like, how do you navigate different people's different levels of comfort with that deeper experience and that quiet space? I mean, I suppose I interject at some point. It's not like I just will cue them in and then leave them there that because they may well be struggling with it. And there's actually physical things that you can see, got people twitching and they can't be, become still. And or, you know, you know, from your own experience and your own practice that you may be there for a while and then you start drifting off into a thought like we have this delusion that we're in charge, right? We're mm -hmm. we're driving the bus. And yet, if when we try and focus on one thing for any period of time, it may only be 10 seconds that then we are the mind comes in, generates a thought and it's like a siren song. We're pulled out of our point. We have decided, we, the one, you know, consciousness that we believe we are, have decided we're going to focus on this. I'm going to focus on the tip of my nose or the breath. And then, oh, I've got to remember to come back and pick up the shopping. And, oh, this thing. I remember that person said this. And, and like all of a sudden, the focus is completely gone. And it's almost like falling asleep. It's like having a dream that we're pulled away into that thought. So I will interject at some points just as a reminder, very gentle, very soft voice. You know, it's important not to kind of come in hard with it, like a military thing. And just remember, relax. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would be useless, you know. So even, even in how, you know, there's definitely a trauma sensitivity approach, I think, in teaching restorative. They might start very gently and then bring that volume up and then fade it out again just to, you know, because they may be deep into it. And so the, your voice may shock them and cause a kind of tension response, which you don't want. So you want to very smoothly come in and out, be that waiter, that mm -hmm. facilitator. Just come in, change the glasses, take the plate away, set up the next course. I don't, I think people come to restart like it's it, you know like at the moment i've got a lot of people people with cancer people with neurological disorders people with ms people who are struggling with chronic pain and stuff people who have issues that are ongoing for them and they find relief in it so either things work or they don't for you and it's not magic which is why why i wrote that book 
that actually the the kind of things that are happening are we're able to test them, we're able to measure them. They they have tangible effects. You can see that in parasympathetic activation, we're reducing cortisol and epinephrine. We're we're decreasing adrenal fatigue and and production because the psoas lengthens and stops squeezing on the adrenal gland. That all these things have results within the body, measurable, tangible results. So it's not magic or you know some kind of I I, I tend to call it rainbow unicorn fairy dust. Often. Yoga teachers I've I've heard over the years, they say things like, oh, you know, you're wringing out the organs inside your body when you twist. Well, if your organs are leaking inside your body, you need to go to the hospital right now. We call that internal bleeding. Where would the organs leak into? And, you know, it's, you know, these kind of functions, they're misunderstood, but they're often propagated over and over again. And they'll have heard it from a teacher and then heard another teacher say it, and then they'll adopt that. And they just haven't done the research into it or they they don't fully know. They just take things for, for granted. If something's repeated enough, you know, if a lie is repeated enough, it, it becomes truth. And if it's repeated even more, it becomes religion. And especially if someone is in that very deep, suggestible state with someone that they trust, like you wouldn't have the same questioning mindset because that's pulling you out of that parasympathetic response and back into your like analytical brain. Sure. So it's like people are almost conditioned to be accepting of these little gems that get sprinkled through their yoga practice. Um, absolutely. I mean, if it's not based in science, you know, it's not that science is definitely kind of and technology we would think of as the as the current godhead, if you like. But science is useful and practical in the scientific method that things are demonstrable and able to be repeated and verifiable. So I tend to to go quite deep into, you know, finding the reality of it or or the truth of it. It's great if there's an assertion that's made or a suggestion that's made, but where's the evidence for it? I think as well, as well as people perhaps being a little more suggestible in a yoga class, we also have this really unique time to have a direct kinesthetic experience of things that might be happening in our own bodies because we have that time and that space to notice those subtle changes. Like people might notice their heart rate slowing down or their breath naturally deepening. And I think it's fascinating learning more about the inner workings of the body. And usually when I've found something new out that I'm excited to share, I'll share it in my class as well. And I definitely am a too much talker rather than not enough talker. And like, if I'm excited about something, I'm going to tell everyone about it in class. And I do think it's like a powerful service that we can give people to have a direct physical experience of what's happening inside the body rather than how our bodies look from the outside. How do you find the balance between being like an educator and sharing things that might help people, but also not just talking the entire class and not actually giving people that space to have their own inner experience? I think I measure it out and that's just experience. That's just teaching over a decade that I don't try and fit every single bit of my anatomical knowledge or understanding. And I'd be the same if I find something and that I want to integrate. I, I absolutely want to share it. And people really enjoy that. They enjoy the spirituality. They enjoy the science. And, the you know, I get a lot of positive feedback about injecting those things into classes and it really made a lot of sense to me. And I've always wondered why legs up the wall and I feel better. And, 
you know, you explained it simply. And that's that's an aspect of, of teaching that I think you develop, not having to share everything that you know in every single class. You could share little tidbits and it'll continue on for months and months. And then you've always, you know, especially if you've got a lot of repeat customers that you don't want to give it everything to them in, in the <laughs> one class. And if you do, you're probably crowding the class too much. So we can have the intention, we can have the anatomy, we can have the movements, the cues, the adjustments. The, you know, I, I find a lot of new teachers, they over cue massively. Before we go on, I just wanted to remind you that you can use our discount code MACFLOW at markaloo.com to get 10% off. You'll support the podcast and a great sustainable Australian company. The Markaloo is a set of nesting domes on a wooden base that you can use for self-massage, stability and proprioceptive awareness. It's such a great portable and accessible tool that really opens up new movement possibilities. And it's a great addition to chair yoga, adding stability challenges to a floor-based practice, or for anyone who loves self-massage. The shape of the Markaloo domes are actually designed to be helpful and comfortable to hold for people working with arthritis or peripheral neuropathy, and their nesting nature allows you to gradually increase load. Check out our link in the show notes for all our Markaloo resources, including some free video classes. Indeed. So to change the topic a little bit, you went into this a little bit briefly, but perhaps we could talk about your book and congratulations for oh, um, winning the Nautilus Award, I believe it is. Yeah. And yeah, I guess if you could go on a little bit deeper into what were your goals when you initially started to, to writing it and indeed what actually started the whole process for you? Well, it never started out to be a book. I was running yin teacher trainings and I'd started doing restorative trainings and the Australian Yoga Academy approached me about running a restorative teacher training program for them. And because they're very academic and, you know, and they're, they're unbelievable to work with, they're Mel and Adele and, you know, I just love working for them. Now I lecture for them. But they had, so I knew I had to put together a really, I had something that I worked off, you know, my notes, but I to to deliver it, I knew it had to be to that level. So I started putting together an academic manual for restorative yoga teachers. And then we got locked down. And so, you know, that that teacher training got cancelled. And I just kept working on it and kept adding to it and finding more and more things. And there was a point where I thought, I think about 17, 18,000 words, where I thought, well, if I join my yin manual and my restorative manual together, I've got a whole book here. It's like 40, 50,000 words. And then we got extended in our lockdown and I just kept writing and kept researching and kept adding more and more things and then I was like, well, maybe Ian's a separate book. I don't need, it's not like a, a school essay where you're trying to make up to a 5,000 words. Uh, you know, actually, it can be completely separate. There's, it, I had to cut stuff out of restorative to, to kind of bring it down at the end. And then I started developing and then we were locked down for even longer. And I just, I'd be waking up spending eight hours a day on research and writing and you know, you never get that time because I own a studio and, you know, you're always busy in classes and admin. And and so I, I was very grateful for I know a lot of people struggled during lockdown, but uh, I had a focus and I just kept running with it. And it was beautiful to have that amount of time, which you never normally would. And then it started being, well, it also, you know, bring in personal experience and stories. 
and that it doesn't just have to be for teachers. Like a lot of this knowledge is very useful for students or people who do it or general people, people interested in consciousness and awareness. And and I, I've always tried to break things down into their simplest you know, little idioms, essentially, of of knowledge that you can share. If I talk in a in a restorative class about the piriformis, I just lost ninety nine percent of the people there. Maybe the the teachers or the doctors or nurses they're going to know what I'm talking about. But if I go deep into anatomical knowledge, then you know most people just don't understand that, and they're not there to learn that. They don't care about it. But if I even in the queuing, you know, I could say rotate this and you know, if I say bring your knee to your little toe, I achieve the same thing and, and I don't exclude everyone. Maybe some people, English isn't their first language. And so as I get more technical and more more difficult in terms of my language, I exclude them and they're, they're looking around, they don't know what to do. Keep it simple, stupid, essentially is. Uh, the, the simpler the cue, the more effective it is, the more understandable it is. And I'm like, great to hear how you turned such a hard time into such a creative and productive time because it's stressful as a studio owner as well. So, 100%. (laughs) It just evolved. It evolved very naturally. It was not my intention to write a book. And then once it was, and there's a lot of stuff to learn, you know, from licensing to you know the images that I had taking photos with, with a friend of mine did all the photos in the book for the poses and stuff then getting quotes from people getting permission from them to use those quotes editing the book I mean I paid another yoga teacher who, who does editing and she was brilliant to edit it up to then format it to then put it out onto Amazon and all of these things are, are new things that you have to learn if you've, you've never done a book, but it's actually quite exciting and I, I enjoy learning new things. And then I, I entered it in initially the Living Now Book Award and won a silver medal in the kind of yoga, fitness and exercise division. And then um, last month or two months ago in the Nautilus Mind, they won a gold medal in the Nautilus Mind, Body and Spirit one, which is which is very nice. I, I like that it's in yoga and mind, body and spirit because it is covering all of those kind of aspects. And I find a lot of, ma- I read a lot of manuals myself and I find a lot of them very dry and difficult and certainly not accessible to the general public. They're made for yoga teachers, sure, but also people want to learn about, maybe you just love restorative and you want to learn more about it or to be able to do it yourself. So I like I, I made them quite short, the chapters, very readable and easy, and that would be a lot of the feedback that I would get. It's just so easy to read even though I'm covering aspects of quantum physics and mechanics and ancient cultures and spirituality and philosophy and psychology and all and how all of these things integrate. For me, it was that each one was a thread. And as those threads come together, they create this tapestry. So it's maybe not visible from one individual thread, but as you bring them together, they weave this tapestry that for me has has made absolute sense. Each aspect, whether it's Reiki or Tai Chi or yoga or philosophy or psychology or, or physiology, that as I've learned that, it's added on to my previous knowledge and, and created a, a much greater, much more cohesive picture and I guess I just wanted to share that with, with other people. Nice. 
And so one, like you did mention quotes in your book, and I guess this is a personal thing for me because a really good friend of mine grew up in an Osho ashram and actually experienced a lot of abuse there, which stays with her and a lot of other people in her circle of people she knows well, because they all grew up there together. And I did read quite a few of the Osho quotes in your book, and like a lot of the words are beautiful, but knowing that they came from a place that's caused so much pain for a lot of people, although everyone has their own experience. Did you have your own kind of decision-making process about whose quotes you included? And this is not unique to the Osho Ashram. There's abuse in many lineages. And I think all yoga teachers probably have that decision-making process of like, who do I draw from? Do I separate what they've said with what they did? And It wasn't really part of my, my process. I was just looking particularly for for quotes that really resonated with the ideas that I was propagating or presenting within the book. I grew up reading Osho as a child. My parents would, you know, certainly I was exposed to a lot of those kind of philosophical texts very early, um, but also Taoism, Buddhism, Jesus Christ. I mean, that if we, you know, were to take that and we couldn't separate you know, there's the Inquisition, the Crusades, burning people at the stake. Would that make all of the a message in the Bible then defunct? Because it probably wasn't done by the people who, who wrote the books or, you know, I mean, maybe the apostles didn't even write the Gospels and stuff. But where there's wisdom, there's wisdom. I mean, I think some of, you know, this is another principle maybe in the in the fourth way school that's really resonated with me and really made a lot of sense to me that we tend to define things as good or evil, right? And yet in reality, what there is is conscious behavior and unconscious behavior. So nobody is being conscious and then doing evil. But depending on your perspective, how those things may look. Now, obviously, abuse in any form is horrible for it. But if a Zen master was training a a disciple and to get him to break free of his things, he was whipping him on the back with a stick. Now, if you were to pass by and see that, it would look horrific. It would look like he's beating him, right? But if that's what made him realize his consciousness, if that's the stimuli that he needed, would he have hated it if it if it brought him there, if the result justified the means? Now, certainly I don't want that to be taken as, you know, abuse can be justified. It's the intention that's there. And and I knew many people in actually in the philosophical community in the States, there were lots of people there who had been in the inner circle of Osho and had had great experiences through it and really liberated their minds. He likes to be challenging. I mean, he was a professor of philosophy and a master's in philosophy. And I like, it's the wisdom and knowledge is there. So yeah, I suppose there is some kind of separation of teacher from it. I mean, perhaps Osho himself, Rajneesh himself was not the person who abused your friend in it, but other people who worked underneath him within his organization who aren't conscious and who then are utilizing their power over other people, as people do. I mean, there's a myriad of yoga teachers and gurus and, you know, who have abused their power. And in those moments, they're acting unconsciously. That's all. It is possible, you know, it's not that 
they they have achieved some level of consciousness, but at other points they're acting unconsciously. So really when you see there is there's no such thing as conscious evil, there's just conscious behavior and unconscious behavior. Yeah, and I think there are within lineages, people have had teachers who told them that something was for their own good and their own spiritual growth when you just take the words of that teacher to hush and don't question them and then pass on those kinds of teachings, which actually could be seen as abusive and sometimes are today. Like it's a very murky world and I definitely don't have the answers. And there's a lot of murkiness in our world. And these are the practices that we can use to get more clarity and more wisdom and more understanding of ourselves and what is a helpful practice for us as individuals, whether someone is telling us that or not. Like I think it is part of the gift of these practices that it does give us connection to our own autonomy and knowing ourselves and loving ourselves. And I don't know, it's like it's coming from those same teachings and those same practices, which could also be used to tell someone to give away their own autonomy and to like be that empty cup for that knowledge and that wisdom. Like, I think it's definitely a lifetime journey and a lifetime practice of self-understanding and awareness. And it's not something that a teacher can teach you. Like it's you being your own inner teacher. I I love the Buddhist precept of you know, if I summarize it to, to a very simple thing, believe nothing, verify everything. It's not true for you. And what's interesting for me is that in the philosophical community in the States, which is called Apollo, that I would ask a lot of questions, always penetrating questions, trying to understand things and concepts. And the students would respond that, well, Rajneesh says, or the Buddha says that, and I'd be like, you don't need to preface every single time I ask you a question with who said it. You can just answer. And they're like, but I don't want to misrepresent it as if I'm giving you the knowledge. I I maybe haven't verified. I can help answer your question with stuff I've read, but maybe it's not even true for me yet. And I'm just repeating it. And maybe I'm adding my own filter into that and then misrepresenting it. And you go away believing. And I'm like, wow, that's really, you know, that's really kind of conscious behavior. And it was, it was a very interesting place to to be in. What's it like being in America at all? Not at all. Be a very multicultural students from all over the world came or lived there or stayed there for a certain periods, all different languages, but nobody lied, nobody gossiped, nobody, you know, people were doing little actions. You'd be talking to someone and their eyes would be going this or the head would be rocking back and forward. And and you'd be like, what are the what are you doing? And they're like, I'm I'm pra- it's a presence practice that I'm working on being even more present while you're talking to me. When you talk to people uh, in Apollo or in a fourth way school, nobody ever interrupts you. Everybody listens right until the end, and then they'll pause, and they'll they'll absorb it and think about it, and then maybe they'll give you a response. Maybe they won't. That it's very conscious listening. And what you find is in the general kind of normal scheme of things that we have, that we'll be saying something and someone will jump in and interrupt, oh, that's like the time that reminds me of that. And, and you know, it's fine to have that kind of banter and back and forth between people. 
But you find when people give you the space to really talk, by the end that you get to the end of your story or whatever you're trying to convey, that you understand it more, that you weren't actually saying it for them. You were for your own understand and having to explain it to someone else makes you understand it in a, in a completely new way. And it was very refreshing to experience that and go, wow, that was, you know, 100 percent what um, what I needed. I, I'll give you a great example that we were at um, a dinner party and the topic of drugs came up. And my mum said to me, because I hadn't seen my mum for about six years, because I was living in England and she was in America, and and we didn't have FaceTime and stuff back then. And I said, wow, have I ever done drugs? I mean, I don't even know people who haven't done drugs, to be honest with you. I, I like work and live in clubs. And, you know, I know people have given up drugs, but like everyone in this youth culture is going out and t- partying on the weekend and taking things and stuff. And she said, oh, well, tell me about it. And I was like, okay. And so we started chatting about my experiences and my history of it, how I started, what I went and did. Now, if I had, you know, because you still talk to your mother, right? That if I had seen some kind of sign of shock or horror or, you know, shame from her, I would have probably edited it. I would have cut out the worst elements of it. But there was none of that. There was completely open you know, living the philosophical idea that they're like, no experience is good or bad. It's just what's necessary for your development. And when you truly believe that, you can't be shocked by someone else's experience. It's what was necessary for them. And so I got to the end and probably took an hour, I'd say at that point. And we, she, like she thought about it for a while and then said, and what'd you learn from it? And that was it. There was no judgment. There was no guilt or shame. Or, oh, my God, my child's got involved in drugs and clubs. And, you know, there was none of that. And so it actually it took me aback. I, I had to go, well, I don't know. I, I don't know what I've learned. from. I've never actually thought about it from that perspective. And it made me pull back and have to consider it. And I, I couldn't come back to her with an answer for, I think, at least a week you know, it was such a profound question and it was given with no judgment. And in that way, you can you can receive it and you can hear it. If you felt a judgment, you would react to that. But even while I was saying it, there was no feeling of judgment or scorn or, or upset with me. It was just so open. And that, you know, it's like we need more of that. We need to be able to communicate with people like that because I got to the end of that story And I had never explained that to anyone, never discussed it at length with someone. And it was incredibly liberating for me to do so. And your mum sounds amazing. (laughs) Yeah, she is. She was very much the muse during the book that we would discuss ideas and stuff and back and forth with her. And uh, she, you know, she still attends different things. Like, you know, when the Mormons come around to the house, she's like, yes, come in. (laughs) And, you know, she would blow their minds. She goes to Quakers meetings. She's not a Quaker, but, you know, it's very open to things. And she, not to challenge people, I think, but just to provide alternate alternate ideas and to open open it up. And the Quakers are actually surprisingly open to, to these kind of things. I think she just likes being challenged intellectually and spiritually and to, to keep developing and keep learning. She goes to different kind of Buddhist or Hindu uh, meditation classes and stuff. Uh, there's always that, that hunger, that desire to keep evolving, which, 
which has definitely affected me growing up in, in amongst that. Beautiful. After all we've been talking about already, I'm like, you do talk about brainwaves in your book. Do you want, do you want to go into that a little bit? Sure. If, if I was to ask you now which brainwave state you were in right now, you probably couldn't answer, right? Even though it's such an integral part of what we do. You know, it was fascinating for me to understand the shift and then start to tune in. Just like you said about bringing that inward focus to the body. No, like our heartbeat's there all the time, right? But we don't notice it unless we focus on it. Our subtle energy body is there providing energy for us. Like every action, every thought, every movement, you know, every thought is a synapse firing in the brain. It requires energy. Every movement is an electrical impulse sent from the brain to your limb that creates movement. When we're upset, we feel drained of what? Of energy, you know, like all of these things are, are affecting us, but we spend very little time thinking about it or realizing it. And brainwaves is absolutely one of those things. And so that shift between, because we have neuroimaging technology these days that we can go and study what's happening to people when they're meditating, what's the actual benefit. And you can achieve those states sometimes very naturally. Maybe it's running or swimming, painting, drawing, writing, that you can, you're actually in those moments where you're boundlessly creative and energetically uplifted. Those moments we recognize and, and there's that kind of expansion of time. It just passes so quickly. Whereas other times you're in another state and, you know, you're hating every minute of it and you're looking at the clock and it's like, oh my God, there's only one minute passed. So it's, it's very interesting. And I think it's something that not a lot of people would be familiar with, yet it, we are literally victims to it unless we're aware of it, much like the limbic brain. The limbic brain was fascinating for me because in my own life, I would have had a tendency, I think, to blame people for making me feel a certain way. And under, learning about the limbic brain and understanding that that part of your brain is not just responsible for all the kind of sexual arousal, memory, waking up, all those kind of functions, but literally in control of how you feel. And it it doesn't really develop beyond a kind of 12, 13-year-old teenager. And it has that kind of maturity. And so the prefrontal cortex does continue developing. And I think a simple way of understanding that this is, if you were to see your partner chatting to some hot girl or guy, now the limbic brain might initiate a feeling of jealousy. That feeling might create a physical sensation in your body, but your prefrontal cortex might go, no, it's cool. It's probably his friend or I trust him. So limbic brain is making you feel one way prefrontal cortex, the logical aspect, is making you feel. So nobody is making you feel in any way except your limbic brain. Your limbic brain is directly responsible for it. So I, I think I try and catch myself when I, if I go to say, you're, you made me feel, you know, dejected or this or that, embarrassed. Or, I go, no, my limbic brain interpreted those from its very immature state because it doesn't develop beyond that state. 
in this way, which is probably a pattern that every time that kind of situation or scenario occurs, that then I am responding in the same way. Prefrontal cortex, thankfully, can I can maybe logic my way out of that and go, no, it's cool. I know, I know him. I know her. I trust them. I, you know, and you can reason your way out of it. But for a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, but there is, you know, especially with things like PTSD or physical traumas to the head, that there can be a real disconnect between the emotional. I, I think it, it completely explains addiction and, you know, these kind of chronic behavioral things. It doesn't have to be drugs. It could be to, you know, being like uh, toxic relationships or, you know, these these kind of behavioral patterns that we have that the limbic brain is, you know, somebody could understand that, yeah, I'm doing heroin and I look terrible and I'm, my body's breaking down and I'm probably it's probably going to kill me. And logically, they can understand that they should give up, right? But then limbic brain jumps in and goes, maybe just one more, just one more, and then you'll give up. And, you know, so you're having this battle internally between prefrontal cortex and the limbic brain. And most people aren't even aware of, of the limbic brain with, within their own body. They're not aware of their brainwave states. They're not aware of the limbic brain. And I think to, to have that knowledge really can help people work through things and realize, okay, I can't be you know, blaming other people, much in the same way that I don't encourage students to be grateful to me. Oh, you've changed my life. I'm doing nothing. You know, I'm just up the front talking, literally is all I'm doing. And you are doing everything. And also in terms of blame, you are doing everything as well, or at least parts of your brain and mind are. So, I mean, thankfully, our brain has the ability of neuroplasticity. So we're able to rewire patterns. And, and you know why yoga studios do 21-day challenges? Because it takes 21 days to rewire the brain. If you start a new pattern, a new habit, that after 21 days, that's the path that you go. So if you were to drive to your local studio tonight, which way would you go? You'd go the way you know right? You always go the way you know. It's the same in your brain. And unless you take a detour, you find a new way, maybe it's a better way, maybe it's a faster route, you're not going to change. You're just going to go the way that you know every single time. Thankfully, we can recreate those neural pathways within the brain. We can rewrite and overwrite negative habits, negative patterns, addictions. That's absolutely there within us. To, to do it. And I think knowing that can be really helpful for people who are struggling with addictions or bad habits or, you know, constantly learning that same lesson over and over again and thinking, why is this happening to me? Again, it's, it's you know, it's related to you. It's to your stuff. And I, and I find that aspect of it incredibly fascinating and to to share it with people and, and, and thinking that this this could really help people to to have that knowledge. It's not something that's particularly common knowledge is it? Mm. And so like you're kind of raising this, like would you associate with that with like the concept of samskaras? Sure. I mean, samskaras in the kind of yogic language would be the repetition of patterns or habits or behaviors, not just in this lifetime, in, you know, of multiple lifetimes that we have built up. So I don't know if you've done Vipassana, the 10-day the silent meditation, but they work on literally 
burning off those samskaras and releasing them through through a practice of equanimity, which actually sits at all the base of all religious and philosophical thought, and yet you hear nothing about it. It's very rarely even discussed, this idea of not reacting to sensations, thoughts, and emotions. Again, it's coming to that kind of stillness within yourself and letting this stuff wash over you. And, and in those moments, you can, you can actually liberate yourself from them. So that, for that idea of burning off samskaras and letting stuff release. So when you're still, when you're busy, nothing's happening, you know, that, that you're just busy, busy, busy with the mind. But when you're still and stuff starts to bubble up. Now, Maybe it's an emotion, maybe it's a memory, maybe it's a thought. Maybe it's one of those thoughts that you don't like to think about. Something that you have guilt or shame or fear or embarrassment about. And you have suppressed that. And so if that thought arises, you don't feel good. So you push it down and you think of something else. But ultimately, you're pushing it down into the body. And, you know, over time, that stuff builds up and like we kind of collect it. And after a while, it's weighing us down. And so that ability to sit in stillness and to find that stillness, that stuff will bubble up. Now, if you react to it, you'll probably suppress it or you'll hang on to it. But if you practice non-reaction, sitting with it. So, I, I mean, there's a much deeper aspect to that in that we're in this kind of societal program of we're, we're chasing happiness, that, you know, and I would have said it myself in the past as well. I just want to be happy, right? And it seems like a very worthwhile life goal. And yet it's coming from a place of lack that we are saying we don't have it. And, you know, when we have sensations that we don't like, we don't want to experience them. We want to get away from them as quickly as possible. And then we're chasing towards experiences that make us feel happy. But happy is a fleeting sensation. It's like a chocolate high. You only have it for a moment, whereas joy, and there's a very important distinction here, joy exists all around you at every moment. It's only a question of perspective. Let's say you hate cleaning the toilet. But you apply looking for the joy in cleaning the toilet, getting that perfect white bowl and every <laughs> movement and, you know, that flow and that rhythm to cleaning. The joy exists in things you even hate. It's there all the time. But chasing happiness and running away from sadness or emotions you don't like is literally being a hamster on a wheel and you're constantly running from one thing towards another, but you're actually getting nowhere. And if uh, until we realize that we're in that trap of what we call craving and aversion, that we like we don't want, we want praise, we want gain, we want all those things. We want to be achieving things, getting things. We don't want blame. We don't want disgrace. You know, these these are things that we resist, though there's massive lists of those. Um, I definitely included a short one within the book. But in terms of your practical life, no one's saying, oh, well, there's an emotion that you don't like. There's a thought you don't like. Why not sit with it? Why not experience it? Why not observe it? Observe its power over you in that moment, because we generally think that we're in charge. And yet, try not going to the toilet. <laughs> Try not scratching your nose when, when it itches. Now, whether you scratch the nose or not, it, that sensation will come and go, all things pass. So if you don't scratch it, who is, like, what's the driving force that's going, oh, my God, I got to scratch it, I got to scratch it? It's the mind. 
The mind is creating that. And while we don't recognize that, we're literally a victim to every single compulsion that we have. Now, it might be food. It might be engagement, some distraction. I need some some kind of external engagement to be happy, to not be bored. We can't just kind of steal. It might be drugs. It could be yoga, that we're using yoga in a way just to, to constantly, you know, three classes a day, just to try and chase the kind of high of it. It, it can be anything, really. But until we realize that we're in that state of craving and aversion, running on the hamster wheel, but actually getting nowhere, that we, when we start to practice equanimity, that we enable ourselves to step out of it. And we can, we can observe that it's happening. We just don't have to be part of it. And I think that's, you know, where, where real liberation lies. And from there, you can start to see joy, even in the things they air. I think it's a really interesting exercise to find something you hate and try and find the love and the joy in it. It's there 100%. It's there everywhere. Beautiful. And yeah, there's definitely something to be said about learning to sit with that discomfort and, and, very many different aspects of life i'm sort of encountering encountering that in my sort of day job and my other jobs sort of learning how to be a bit more comfortable in the parts i may not usually enjoy as much no that's that's great so i guess we've got one more question and i said this at the end of each of our episodes but to if you could distill everything that you've learned and everything that you teach down to one core essence what do you think that one thing would be that there's a greater purpose to life than just paying bills and existing, just surviving. That this isn't the reality of our existence, that we're not even physical, that we believe that we are this physical being. But when we go into the, the kind of quantum understanding of what we are, we're spinning atoms and, th- and mostly empty space, 99% empty space. If I was to take all the empty space out of you, you would fit inside a grain of sand. So, you know, the, the reality of our existence is kind of a delusion that, or the veil, Maya, this, this idea that we're, we're kind of, you know, we, we see what reality is, but in reality, we, we see one ten billionth of what's actually going on right now. Cosmic rays, gamma rays, x-rays, things you can't see, things you don't feel, they kind of sit below your perception, but so does your heart rate and heartbeat. So it's a pulse of blood flow through your fingers. If you tune into it, you can feel it, but Usually we have this kind of veil or, you know, in terms of the the kind of philosophical idea, we're just asleep. We're asleep and we don't know it. I mean, another person I, I heavily quoted in in the book was was Gurdjieff. And Gurdjieff very famously said that man is in a prison of his, his own creation. But until he realizes that he's in a prison, he doesn't even make any attempt to escape so, you know, realizing those aspects of yourself, the noise of your own mind, the reaction to negative, you know, what we perceive as negative or positive, chasing these kind of high moments or bliss moments, just that it just propagates more of the same. Einstein said repeating the same actions over and over again and expecting a different result is the sign of madness. And yet we do that. We'll worry about something. We'll have anxiety and fear over it. And then it doesn't happen. And that worry never comes to pass. Do we learn and then change? No, we go straight into our next worry. So realizing that we are in a kind of prison of our own construction or a kind of sleep state, almost automatic pilot. I guess I kind of 
I think of it as like texting while driving. It's very easy to go through your entire life doing just enough not to crash into someone, right? Which is what you do. I mean, it's illegal. I'm not encouraging <laughs> texting while driving, but you can do it. And, you know, you'll look up enough to make sure you don't crash into the next car. And you want to be very careful that that's not how you live your whole life, that you're just kind of lost in your thoughts, texting away to yourself, and you look up occasionally just enough to, to make sure you don't die. Uh, life, life is much more than that and has a much deeper meaning than that. And we are definitely not here just to pay utility bills and make people money. I think people are very focused on, on the gain aspect of craving. They just, what they can get and what they can achieve. And Russell Brand said very famously that he wished everybody could get everything they desire so they could see that happiness doesn't exist there. Because once you've got it, and then it's the next thing and the next thing. And it's actually the craving that's causing the suffering, not the lack of having things. Whereas you can see in a third world country, you know, three kids who are penniless playing with a cardboard box in absolute joy. And they have nothing. And, you know, that those kind of moments when, when you do have them, it makes you question your own cravings and desires and oh, I'll be happy when I get that partner or the house or the new car or that pair of shoes and stuff. And when you get them, you're happy for a moment and then it's gone and then it's the next thing and the next thing. And we never question the driving force behind it. And it's kind of our own minds conning us into this state, state that we are the one kind of identity, the one that we are, I feel this, I think that. They're often very contradictory. They're clashing with each other or maybe even completely ignorant of each other. That we, in one moment, oh, I always, ah, oh, I never tell lies. Next moment, you're lying. And you have no problem coalescing those different kind of eyes within it, um, within yourself. Yet if you see it in someone else, you go, oh, what a hypocrite. Yeah, we're all hypocrites because we don't even recognize that we see. They, they exist interdependently, but we think of, it, of ourselves as one cohesive thing. We think of ourselves as one cohesive physical body. We're very attached to the physical body, but it doesn't really exist. It's just atoms spinning around if we break it down into the quantum thing. So the reality of the nature, the true nature of our reality, is we, it's hidden from us, from a veil. And I guess... Through writing the book and my own teachings, there's definitely been moments where I felt like I've, I've channeled, like I've tapped into some greater kind of consciousness. And, you know, you kind of get out of the way for it. It's not, a, a, you know, a quote that I've read that I'm incorporating. Sure, I do that. But sometimes stuff comes out and I'm talking to a room full of people. And there might be the moment where I go, I hope I've got a point. <laughs> I hope there's a point to what I'm saying, but I just need to get out of the way. And, and those are the moments when people come up and say to me, how did you know? I, I'm not Facebook stalking you, you know, that I, it's just what I, maybe you drew it out of me or I'm tapping into that kind of conscious thing and, and allowing it to come through. Maybe you needed to hear it, maybe you didn't, but that's what came out and I got out of the way. It's funny, I've seen... Uh, you know, I can. Uh, you can tell after a while when people are channeling or are connected to that conscious kind of state and stuff's flowing out of them. But you can also tell when they've been disconnected, when egos got involved and they're 
kind of trying to um, uh, say something or they, they want to keep saying really profound spiritual things. And I remember seeing a guy out in Power Living and, and he had said some really good stuff and he was definitely channeling. But at the end, he maybe just wanted to finish on a really strong one. And he went, and you know, the heart is... Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking, the heart is, yeah. All right. <laughs> I know what's happened. It, he, was, he was maybe like trying to force that and, and impose it. And so they cut him off. Like he just got cut off. His connection was hung up. And so he's left stuck there saying, yeah. And nobody questioned it in the class, which was hilarious. And, and I was thinking, wow, I've, I've had that. I've had it myself <laughs> where my own egos got involved. And so I'm disconnected and you're kind of left stumbling for words the heart is yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, such, such a beautiful <laughs> statement right. i'm sure people were thinking oh i'm probably not not connected enough to to understand what he's saying or there's some deep spiritual i'm like yeah he got cut off yeah. that, that's all that happened well, maybe there was some dude up the back who was like i really needed to hear that today yeah. <laughs> i mean i've been over the years i think i've evolved from being a very strong vinyasa style teacher you know, to actually, my focus has completely shifted to raising consciousness. It's not, I mean, in, especially in restorative yoga, it's not important the poses. It's, uh, the poses are actually secondary to the state of being that wants to be achieved. And, you know, it's the results that, that really matter. So I think, you know, sometimes people worry about being repetitive and stuff in there or running out of poses. I have no problem repeating. And certainly there are things you can bring in, you know, parasympathetic exercises, mindfulness things, breath work, all, all towards bringing the focus inside, all towards a parasympathetic activation and um, essentially raising consciousness. I mean, if we go further and further back, that this is... You know, yoga was never about asana, about the physical poses. The physical poses were merely the warm-up for to prepare you to be in the present moment, the only space yoga actually exists, yeah? Atha yoga asanam. This is like where this is the present. It's only in present moment. Now, you may be in a yoga class and you're doing the exercises, but it's only when you're connected into the now, into that moment, that you're actually doing yoga. Up until that point, you're not. You may be doing the physical exercise, but any circus performer could walk in and do a handstand. Are they practicing yoga? Are they connected breath? Are they reducing the fluctuations of the mind? Coming, no, probably not, because, and it's a practice. We got to to develop it and do it multiple times. And it's the repetition that maybe we get there and we stay there for longer each time and we realize it. I mean, certainly there were things when I was practicing before I started teaching that I would hear teachers say, but I kind of thought, I guess that doesn't apply to me, <laughs> you know? And, and so I would continue on. And maybe somebody would say it in a different way or my knowledge advanced. And then later I'd be like, wow, I've been doing ujjayi breath wrong for the last seven years you know i've been practicing it and i'm like wow now i get that and oh i feel oh, that's so different and you think breathing is is quite simple because we do it every day but most people pay no attention to their breath so i guess 
that the my focus has shifted in terms of how I'm teaching or how I'm, you know, there's definitely that that constant undercurrent of bringing the focus inside rather than the external things, non-reaction and equanimity, that practice of sitting with things, allowing things to bubble up and release, and essentially healing our, ourselves on an, on an energetic level because this is the core level. I can apply... A, a cream, you know, a, a non-steroidal cream or something to antihistamine to the skin, but it's the organs underneath that, you know, maybe have are, are literally manifesting as that rash on the skin. And I can treat the external, but unless I address the internal, nothing's going to change. It's going to happen again and again. You're just putting a Band-Aid on it. So, you know, bringing people into that kind of uh, of awareness of themselves. I mean, all medical and philosophical kind of uh, ideologies up until about the 18th century, they were all focused on moving and balancing energy within the body. It's only really when we got into Descartes and that Cartesian paradigm that we shifted away from, you know, everything is connected and we are a part of it to, oh no, there's just us and everything else is separate from us. And in doing that, we actually lost a lot of connection and lost a lot of wisdom. It is coming back, I think, as we, we cycle through the kind of different ages. And certainly there's those movements towards more awareness-centered, more parasympathetic nervous system like restorative. I, to be honest, I, I think restorative yoga is much closer to the kind of yoga that would be practiced in the past, more about focusing on consciousness and, and energy than a dynamic kind of, you know, which is a much later invention mixed with gymnastics and calisthenics. And it's kind of like we've taken yoga and we've maybe twisted it and made it relevant to our age, something that people will enjoy and be attracted to. And, you know, we need to hook them into it. I mean, Patanjali was doing the same thing with the sutras. That knowledge was thousands of years old already. He was repackaging it for his age and presenting it in a way that would appeal to that. And thousands of years later, we're repackaging it. And we have like goat yoga and beer yoga and, and all these kind of twistings of it. But I, I think sometimes we're getting further and further away to what the real point of yoga was. So I, I sometimes use this example in the teacher trainings that imagine soccer disappears from the planet, right? And everyone forgets about it. And, you know, a thousand years from now, somebody finds a training manual. And, you know, we're at that point living in virtual realities in chairs that float us around and we don't do any exercise. And they find these sprints and run in and out of bollards and pass the ball back and forward to each other. And they go, this is amazing. This is so good. So brilliant for you. And look how good I feel. And yet they never actually play a game of soccer. <laughs> they just do the practice for it, never do it. And I, I sat behind a girl in a, in a cafe a little while back and she was saying to her friend how much she was loving going to yoga and she started going to yoga and she loves it. And that piqued my interest. And the friend said, that's great. So do meditate. She goes, no, I don't have time for that. So, you know, do the practice, but never actually play the game. And I wonder very much, are we in that kind of scenario where we have twisted and somewhat distorted yoga to fit our culture rather than getting the full benefit or actually playing the game. 
that we're we're willing to do that and we're willing to do the practice for it and we feel good to a certain degree from that but there's very benefits focus the mind it's not like vinyasa is wrong or yin is wrong there are absolute benefits in it but eventually you have to take your practice and take it into the real game which is consciousness beautiful oh thanks for that i feel like your final thought could be a podcast all on its own <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's amazing yeah thanks so much yeah, thank you for everything you've shared with us You're today my pleasure awesome <laughs> We hope you found our conversation with Paul inspiring, leaving you eager to explore more about his book and the world of restorative yoga. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for tuning in to our podcast. For more content and updates, you can find me on Instagram as Ran Loves Yoga, and Joe can be found at Garden of Yoga. We love connecting with our listeners, so don't hesitate to reach out and share your thoughts. We'd like to express our gratitude to Goal Soul for generously granting us permission to use their track Baby Robots as our theme song. Be sure to check out gosoul.bandcamp.com to discover more of their incredible music. A special shout out goes out to our Patreon supporters. Your continued support means the world to us and we are incredibly grateful. By joining our Patreon club for as little as $1 US a month, you can help us cover the cost of editing and producing the podcast. If Patreon isn't your thing, there are other ways you can support us. Simply sharing this episode on social media, subscribing to us on platforms like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or even reaching out to let us know your thoughts and feedback means the world to us. Once again, thank you for spending your precious time with us. We appreciate you more than words can express. He aroha nui mawa kia koutou katoa. Sending you big, big love.